Thank you, praise band. West Bowles, good morning. Well, as Ryan mentioned um, earlier, I am excited to, in just a moment, bring up Margaret Feinberg, who's here to speak this morning. And the thing you need to know about Margaret is she has written numerous, numerous books and numerous Bible studies. And, and some of you know that because you've gone through those books or those studies with a group here at the church. Um, but one of those includes this book, Fight Back with Joy. And uh, my wife is actually in the acknowledgments of this book. I, I know you guys don't care about that, but it's page 197, four lines up from the bottom. And I, I went through and highlighted every single book out there just so you can look for it, all right? Um, long before I ever knew Margaret was an author, um, this is what I think is so cool. Uh, I knew Margaret, and we knew Margaret here at the church at West Bowles. And through the years, my wife and I um, have had a friendship with uh, Margaret and her husband, Leif. And in the process of hanging out with them, I kind of had this thought, and it was just this. We're friends with this author. I should probably read one or two of her books. And as I read those books, um, I discovered some profound insights. And I discovered some genuine encouragement. But above all that, I discovered reminders that pointed me back to God's word. And as I thought about that, as I was reading those books, I went, well, that's who she is. I mean, that's who we get to experience every time we hang out with them. And so I'm excited for you to get to experience that as well this morning. Will you join me in giving a warm welcome to Margaret Feinberg? Oh, that's good. That's good. Thank you, thank you. It is such a privilege to be here. And I wanted to I begin by asking you a question that I often ask when I teach, and that is simply, would it be okay if I took off my shoes? <laughs> All right. Woo! Because more and because that gives you permission to take off your shoes. I know. But more and more, I simply find the Spirit of God saying, you be you, and you be mine. And when I am most fully myself and most fully his, I'm in the best possible place. And so this morning I wanted to share just a little bit about what kind of God has been doing in my own life. And, and some of you I've met before, some of you have heard me speak before, and some of you were just going to be new besties. That's just how it's going to be. And, um, but to, to know a little bit about me, I come from a bit of an unusual background, and that I was raised by a Jewish father who made surfboards back in the 1950s, the very first time that longboards were cool. He eventually built up his surfboard manufacturing business to be the largest manufacturer of surfboards on the East Coast. But through a series of fires, he lost everything and more. And in the process of rebuilding their lives, my mom and dad opened up Oceanside Surf Shop down in Cocoa Beach, Florida on A1A right down the street from Ron Johns. And there were these customers who kept coming into my Jewish dad's surf shop and telling him about one man, Jesus. Well, eventually my Jewish dad, he grew so frustrated that he picked up a New Testament, he read it from beginning to end, and he concluded that Jesus Christ came to this earth, he lived, he died, and he was resurrected that we might have eternal life for free. And that is a good deal. <laughs> and he has been following Jesus for more than 40 years. 
Well, growing up around that laid-back surfing culture in Florida and an even more laid-back snowboarding culture here in Colorado, as I've grown older, I've started to crave more formal expressions of faith. And one of the places that I have found that is in the church calendar. And many of you know that this spring we went through a season in the church calendar known as Lent. And Lent is not that stuff that you find in your belly button. Lent is the 40 days before Easter in which we prepare our hearts and our minds for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as I was entering into the season of Lent a few years ago, I began praying and saying, Lord, what would you have me do? And I just sensed this thought that said, you should read the Bible. And I was thinking, cool, which chapter, which verse? And it was like, no, the whole Bible in 40 days? And so what we did is we put together a little reading plan, posted it on our website, and just invited people to join and read through the entire Bible in 40 days and honestly thought that we would hear crickets. But within 72 hours, we had more than 5,000 people download a free reading guide to read through the Bible. So we started hearing from people all around the world, grandmas and daughters and granddaughters, fathers and sons, groups of friends, college students, all beginning to read through the Bible in preparation for Easter. People started inviting people who didn't even know Jesus and had never been to church. I have this friend, Janella, she lives in Alabama, and so she invited her coworker who knew nothing about church to read through the Bible. So she starts reading and is going along, and after a few weeks, she comes to Janella and says, um, I just wanna let you know that this whole reading plan is not accomplishing what you want it to. And Janella's like, what, what do you mean? And she says, well, I've just decided I don't like God. Janella's like, why not? She says, well, God seems to have a really short temper, a bad fuse, and he likes to blow stuff up. And you know, I said, well, you just keep reading, keep hanging in there. And a few weeks later, she comes back and she says, you know, I still, I still don't really like God. I still don't really connect with this very well, but I have figured out what this book needs. Janella says, what's that? This book needs a hero. This book needs someone to come along and make God not so mad. And Janella said, you keep reading because that hero is coming and his name is Jesus Christ. Well, as I am moving through the Old Testament and starting to enter into the new, I began to discover that there was this one word that just kept popping off of the page. It was a common word, a word that I had seen hundreds, if not thousands of times before. But this time when I saw it, somehow it struck me as subversive and downright dangerous. Now this is a tiny word, just but two syllables that if squished together you would look at and you would think, surely this word doesn't contain that much power. Surely this word doesn't have that much potential. And yet, I am becoming increasingly convinced that one of the most powerful and potent words in all of the scripture is the word today. Now, if you begin looking up this word within the Gospels, what you'll discover is that this word appears most frequently in the Gospel of Luke in declarations like this. Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. Today, salvation has come to this house. Today, you will be with me in paradise. 
Why is this word so powerful and dangerous? Because of what I notice next. You see, it is the same writer of Luke who uses this word today so often, so frequently, who as a writer, he is utterly committed to making sure that we understand that those who encountered the person of Jesus Christ with an open heart were readily left in awe. In fact, if you look up the word wonder in the Gospels, you'll find that it most frequently appears in this Gospel of Luke. We begin to see in the Gospel of Luke that there is a sense that anyone who encountered the person of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, they couldn't help but stand back and marvel. Which is why if you look up marvel and awe and wonder and joy in the Gospels, all of those most frequently in the book of Luke. And all of this got me to thinking, is there a connection between recognizing the wonder and the awe and the marvel and the joy of God and understanding that God wants to move in our lives today? You see, my observation is that most of us tend to live our lives in terms of tomorrow or sometime in the future. But tomorrow allows us to transform reality into a vague and a distant dream, one in which we try to control the outcome, one in which we avoid the obstacles, one in which we try to hone our risk management skills. The only problem is, is that it's all an illusion because tomorrow doesn't exist and only today is real. And I believe that the power and the presence of God are not locked up sometime far, far in the future, but they are available to us today. And when we begin using the word today, expecting God to show up today, hungering for God today, then everything changes. Because suddenly God takes center stage and he crashes into our world, beginning to transform us forever. It is safe to use words like someday and one day, but when we begin using that word today, then we begin living as children of God with this sense of divine expectation. We begin living on that high alert to encounter God, according to Isaiah chapter 9, whose name is Wonderful, a God who is literally busting at the seams to display his glory and his power and his might in our lives. And so I spent some time looking at the wonders of God, saying, Lord, give me your wonder, show me your wonder, open my eyes to your wonder, and I began seeing God in so many fresh and new ways. I began to recapture that sense of the wonder of salvation, the wonder of forgiveness, the wonder of reconciliation, the wonder of friendships, and so much more. But this morning, what I wanted to do was zero in on one particular wonder, a wonder that God has just been opening up and exposing the depths of in my own life over the last few years. And that is the wonder of joy. You see, I don't think that it was a mistake that less than six weeks after I finished that Lenten study of reading through the entire Bible, of digging into that sense of divine expectation, that I reached over one day and I felt a lump. 
at first, I remember thinking, man, this is just my imagination, and, and maybe if I just press on it enough times that, that it'll go away, except it didn't budge. I remember going to my husband, Leif, of almost 12 years of marriage, this six-foot-eight tall guy looking into his baby blue eyes and saying, honey, I need you to play doctor. And he got a boyish grin across his face. <laughs> and I said, not that kind of doctor. And he felt it too. They went through a series of tests and eventually got the news that I had cancer. I remember on the phone with the doctor after he used the word carcinoma, everything else went blurry. And afterwards, I remember Leif just wrapped me up in his arms and he just, he held me so tight and I knew in that moment that we had crossed a threshold through which life was never going to be the same. And I share that because many of you in this room, you too have crossed a similar threshold. A threshold may be one where you are just moving through life and, and kids are, are entering a new stage of school or perhaps they're, they're, they're leaving and you are entering a stage of empty nest. But for others of you, the threshold has been far more hard and difficult. A threshold where you got the phone call that no parent ever wants to get. The news showed up in a form in your post office box and you wish that you could shred it and it was never true. You saw the officer show up on your doorstep. And you knew in that moment when the doctor called or the psychiatrist spoke to you that life was never going to be the same for you or those that you love. And I remember on my day when I crossed that threshold that I felt so many things. I remember feeling panic and fear and anger and terror and confusion, but I also felt something else. I felt this holy resolve rise up, that if I was going to be thrust onto the battlefield, that the weapon that I was going to fight back with was joy. That I was going to be a person that no matter what came, I was going to respond and act in the wealth and in the depth and in the wonder of joy. Now I know for a lot of people that sounds like Captain Cray Cray Pants. I get it, I mean who does that? Who gets the word, you have cancer, you're like woohoo, joy! Yeah, I know, except that for the year before, God had been awakening that word in my heart, along with the Lenten journey. That I was even two weeks from turning in a book on joy when I got the diagnosis, and I had to, I had to wreck that book, because in that time of my life, I'd been pursuing joy in the relatively good times of life, and now here I was having to pursue the wonder of joy in the darkest, most painful times of life. And yet what I began to discover is that more than whimsy, joy is a weapon we use to fight life's battles. Because if we're honest in this room, all of us are in a fight. Sometimes you get to pick the fight and sometimes the fight picks you. But the question is, is what weapon are you going to use to respond? Psychologists tell us that as humanity, we are wired toward one of three primary responses. We will fight, we will flee, or we will freeze. My perfect and favorite one is to like throw a tablecloth over this and crawl underneath and beg to God that it all goes away. But most of us reach for more ready-made weapons. We may reach for a response that is tinged by anger or bitterness or becoming a control freak, trying to, to dial in every last detail. 
Others of us swim in that long river of denial. Others of us slip into a depression or a funk that no one can pull us out of no matter how hard they try. But the question for you is what if you chose to fight back with joy today? See, over the last few years, I have been in the trenches trying to figure out how do you do this? How do you live this out as somebody who's been in the church and followed Jesus for a whole lot of years? And what I want to offer is just two tactics that you can begin using today as you begin to discover the wonder of joy and discover it as that which you can fight back no matter what you are facing. And the first tactic is to rejoice when it makes no sense. Rejoice when it makes no sense. Those of you who brought your Bibles, please turn to the book of Habakkuk. Those of you who didn't, please turn on your iPads, iPhones, Blackberries, Raspberries, or Blueberries. Because there is no excuse today not to have a Bible with you. It's a free app. And as you're going to the book of Habakkuk, or how some pronounce and I prefer Habakkuk, I want you to realize that the reason I call him Habakkuk is because I really want him to have his own show on the Food Network. <laughs> what is Habakkuk going to cook for us tonight? I don't know, but it's kosher. It's bad. It's bad. So Habakkuk is completely baffled because there is King Jehoiakim who is ruling over the land and over Judah. And under his leadership, corruption has spread like gangrene. The people's hearts have been inflamed with rebellion, and in their sickness, they have forgotten God. Habakkuk cries out, and God answers that he is doing something. Aslan is on the move. He is raising up the wicked Babylonians to come in and triumph throughout the land. But that answer, it just confuses Habakkuk more. Because he's trying to wrap his head around why would God use evil in order to accomplish good. And so Habakkuk gets so frustrated, he marches out to the city wall and he stands there like a cross-armed kid, red in the face, and he looks at God and says, I am not moving until you answer me. Well, what's interesting is the Bible doesn't tell us how long he stood there. Like how many to-go orders of food he needed, how many changes of clothes he had to go, or how the heck he used the restroom. We have no idea. But what we do know is that eventually God answers him. And he says, you know what? My plans are fixed. Judah has been judged. This tumor of sin must be cut out. But what appears as evil will bring about healing. And the man, Habakkuk, whose name means wrestle with God, discovers the truth that we can all discover. And as we wrestle with God, we can learn to embrace him more deeply. Habakkuk is a story. It's a movement of fear to faith, of worry to worship. And if you have a few moments this afternoon, it is three short chapters that are well worth your time. But the most stunning declaration in this book comes in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. When he says this, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk helps us recognize what do you do? When the pantry is bare, 
when the provision has run dry, when life is stripped of its meaning and all you have is tears instead of trust. Habakkuk teaches us that you can choose to rejoice when it makes no sense. Now, there is a part of me that wants to dismiss this Old Testament prophet as just kind of maybe some dusty suggestion. I mean, does he really mean it? Except the problem is is this instruction to rejoice, even in the hardest of circumstances, appears repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New. I mean, it is the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 4, where he instructs, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And I am thinking, let me look up that word always in the Hebrew and in the Greek and in the Spanish and in the German and in the Pig Latin and the Urban Dictionary. And what I discovered is that always means always, all the time. I'm Jewish. I looked and read all the fine print. I tried to find the loophole. (laughs) There isn't one. I mean, and then there's a part of me that wants to dismiss the Apostle Paul and say, well, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. Maybe, maybe he was just that guy who was all rainbow and sunshines and puppy dogs, except that this was a guy who was wrongly imprisoned, beaten. He was whipped. He was tortured. He was shipwrecked and snake-bitten. And so the question that I start to wonder is how? How do you do this? How do you do this when the pain that you are in is so overwhelming. One day, I remember Leif and I were driving to Anschutz for treatment on 285, and I really wish they would pull out all of those stoplights because it makes it really long to drive on 285. And as we're driving, I know that the appointment that I'm gonna go to, the treatment that I'm gonna receive, it is going to hurt worse than the last one and I'm a wreck, I'm just a hot mess. And there are tears running down my cheeks, and and as we're driving, it's just just too much. And this song came on, and it was Matt Redman's 10,000 Reasons. And ever so faint, I just started to sing, and Leif sung with me, and we we just started to sing, Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul. Worship your holy name. When the song ended, we hit repeat, and we sung it again and again, inch after inch, foot after foot, mile after mile, until we got to the hospital. And on that day, that's when I started to learn that even doctors' offices can be transformed into portals of praise, that even waiting rooms can become places of worship. I remember crawling into the MRI machine, the ride at the hospital that I like to call Ride the Donut. They put you on a sled, and they have a big tube, and then this voice tells you, sit still, don't move. And suddenly, you are as itchy and wiggly as a (laughs) four-year-old. And I'm laying there, terrified of what the results will be, and staring up. And then I began to wonder, has anybody praised God from this latitude and this longitude today? Has anybody proclaimed the glory of God in this square inch? And that's when I discovered 
that the secret to rejoicing when it makes no sense is that you do it one square inch at a time. And you take this square inch and this square inch and this square inch as you keep moving through life. I don't know where that square inch is for you. Where is it? For some of you, it is a medical appointment that is coming up next, this, this next week. It is going to be in a PET scan machine or a CAT scan or some other unpleasant scan device. For others of you, that place of struggle and that place of that square inch might be in a classroom as you're about to set up for another year of school. It may be at your workplace as you are looking at the books and you are recognizing that you can't keep all the employees you have or worse, you are the employee and you may not have a job in two weeks. Some of you, that square inch is that place in your child's bedroom. And others of you, it may be at a grave site. But would you be brave enough to identify the darkest place in your life and begin offering up praise to God one square inch at a time? Why is this so important? because you will become what you proclaim. And if you proclaim the goodness and the faithfulness and the love and the beauty of God, then you will draw closer to him and reflect more of him. And every time that you rejoice when it makes no sense, you declare that the darkness has not and will not win. And for the second tactic, I want to share just what I've been learning the hard way over the last few years. And that is, is that when difficult things happen, often people have no idea what to say. I've been around pastors who have been pastoring because of my role in ministry for 20 and 30 years, and, and they just look at me and they say, you know, I, I, just, I just don't know what to say. And inside I'm like, this is your job. One of our friends is the former head of FEMA. Not like friend on Facebook, like we celebrate holidays together, we've been on vacation together. And when this happened, he kind of backed off a little bit and he finally just came back a few months later. He said, just, I, just, I just haven't known what to say or do. And I'm thinking, you were the head of FEMA. Disaster relief. And so we live in a culture, even in the church, where we proclaim so well, love God, love others, but the question becomes how? How do we do that? And for any of you who have, been, who have had that experience of maybe you've experienced a loss or a trial, maybe you've walked through a miscarriage or infertility or divorce or prolonged custody battle, or maybe you've received a difficult or mysterious diagnosis and you feel like you are trapped in one long episode of people say the dumbest things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry because I know that I have said them too. But for the last few years, I, I've been on the receiving end of them. And, and so I've had, I don't even know how many people who have come up to me and they've been like, oh, my aunt or my mother or my sister or my cousin or my friend, they had cancer and they're dead. Wah, wah. Or, or there was this guy and he came up and he was like, oh, I know exactly what you are going through. My dog had cancer too. 
And I'm thinking, that's rough. I'm a dog lover, by the way. I'm so in love with dogs that I think I'm going to name my next dog Goat so I can tell everyone he's my kid. <laughs> so bad. Explain it to your neighbor. <laughs> I even had one person who, who came up to me at a recent event. She looked at me and she said, mm-mm, moment you got on stage, my mama leaned over and she said, mm-mm, something wrong with that one. As if finding the cancer patient is like playing Where's Waldo. And I found that some of these things that are said, because we don't know what to say and we're not trained how, which is one of the reasons that I wrote Fight Back With Joy, so everybody could know what to say and how to, how to respond when a friend of yours is in crisis. But I discovered they were also in the cards. The cards people sent. People would send me a card and say, in sympathy. And I am thinking, I am in sympathy for your card. Or I get someone, they'd say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I'm thinking, I miss the tatas too. That is funny. <laughs> but finally, I just felt, I got to do something. I got to do something to help equip people on what to say and what to do. And I remember I woke up one night, and I, and I couldn't sleep. And, and I, I, just, I just had this thought, and I was like, I have to make some greeting cards. And so I, I, I had my little phone, and I created, like, the little tent with a blanket over it, you know, with a little light. And I just started typing, and this is what you say, this is what you say, this is what you say. When I typed in the last one, put the phone down, and whoosh, right back asleep. Very next morning, I wake up, and there is this letter waiting for me for this, from this gal who we know really well. And she says this, she says, Margaret, I don't know if this is God or not, but I really feel like you should create some greeting cards that provide our hope and love and inspiration and speak life into people going through a difficult time. Sacred echo. Wait a second. And so because I'm kind of the C student following God, it took me a couple months to kind of pull it together. But just this spring, we finally released these cards. And, and if, you, if you were writing notes, write these. This is what you say. This is what you say. You say, I can't imagine all you're facing, but know the rest of us live in wonder and awe of you. You may be cray-cray, but you are my kind of cray-cray, and that's why I love you bunches. In case no one has told you today, you are strong, you are brave, and you are amazing us all. These are the kinds of things that you say that breathe hope and life and love into people's journeys as they face hard times. But a few months before these came out, I had a friend by the name of Ron who looked at me and he said, Margaret, I've also struggled to know what to say. And he says, so I've just been praying. I've been asking Jesus, what do I say? What do I say? What do I say? He says, I think I finally got the words. And I'm kind of optimistic because he's a good friend, but I'm kind of scared, right? At the same time, I'm like, woo, could go south really, really fast. And he says, Margaret, as I've been praying, the thing that I sense that Jesus wants to say to you is your heavenly Father wants to speak to you. Your heavenly Father wants to speak to you. Because somewhere along the way, I think I had forgotten. Somewhere along the way, I think we all forget. C.S. Lewis once observed that God whispers in our pleasures, but he shouts in our pain. And the reason that I believe God shouts in our pain is because pain is so stinking loud. It demands all of your energy, all of your emotional bandwidth until you are deafened to the voice of God when you need to hear it most. 
And so in the midst of the tiredness and the exhaustion and the worn outness, I just went back to this book. I said, Lord, where do I start reading? And I just got led to Hebrews chapter 11. So I started reading Hebrews 11 each day, but then I got more interested and started to go deeper. I started to go and look up every person's name mentioned in Hebrews 11 and read their story in the Old Testament. I was studying the matriarchs and the patriarchs of faith, the mamas and the papas. And what I began to see is that there's a split that takes place in Hebrews 11 where there are those who conquer kingdoms and who shut the mouth of lions. I mean, these are the people who can toot the shofar and say, winner, winner, matzo ball dinner. <laughs> but then there is this other group. And for them, they are sawn in two and stoned to death. What I began to see in the scripture and in my own life is that the outcome doesn't really matter. What matters is following Jesus, pressing our nose so close to his shoulder blades that he is the only one that we see that we would follow him in full faithfulness. As I am studying and I am reading, I sense the Holy Spirit whisper. He whispers four words, not audibly, never heard the audible voice of God, but just as a thought in my mind, it's the only thing that I can think about. My sweet heavenly father spoke to me, and here's what he said. I will sustain you. I will sustain you. Now, anytime you think you are hearing something from God, you need to know that this book is the foundation and the filter for everything you're hearing. If it does not line up, you check it far out in the back. But there are characteristics to God's voice in your life. Everything he says will line up with Scripture. Often when God speaks, he doesn't speak in long paragraphs or run-on sentences. He speaks in just a few choice words or syllables. And to someone else, they won't mean anything, but to you, they mean everything. And there is a repetitive nature to the voice of God. He speaks in what I like to call sacred echoes. Because ultimately when God is speaking, he's not speaking for information. He is speaking for transformation. New life, just as he did in the beginning of Genesis. So here I am with this, I am, I will sustain you. And I start searching the scripture and saying, Lord, where are you saying this? Where are you saying this in your word? And I got drawn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, verse 4, where it says this. It says, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Honey, sometimes you claim a scripture and sometimes you just white-knuckle it. And I'm white-knuckling this baby. So for those of you who came here this morning, again, I don't know your story. I don't know your diagnosis. I don't know the challenge that your family is facing. But what I do know is that your Heavenly Father wants to speak to you. And one word from him can change everything. These tactics, it's not where I've been. It's where I still live. I go to the doctor every 45 days. The night before I have to go to the doctor, I can barely sleep because of night terrors. I see myself getting sliced and burned and cut open again. These aren't some coping mechanisms. These are, these are Christ-faithful, found ways 
to discover the depths of the wonder of joy and to begin fighting back on whatever battlefield you find yourself on. Because if I can learn to use these today to fight back with joy, so can you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, today, meet us here. Today, Lord, help us to identify the darkest places in our life and choose to rejoice in them one square inch at a time. Today, Father, speak to us. We know you as our Heavenly Father wants to give us your words, your sustaining, your courage, your hope, your love. We know that today one word from you can change everything. Speak, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. West Bulls, you see what I mean? I hope you, I hope you gained insight today, and I hope you gained encouragement. But above all that, I hope you were pointed back to what God's Word is all about, Jesus Christ. And so with that being said, will you join me? Thank Margaret one more time. Thank you so much for coming today. You are dismissed. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.